Pastor Podcast, part two for the first time ever. If you didn't know, we did an episode with a guy named Ryan, and this is the second part of that episode. So I'm not going to do the normal intro because I want to get right into talking with Ryan about his story. Where we left off, Ryan, if I recall, was that you had maybe a hard time at a church in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And that maybe the normative approach to things was you would just find another church to jump into but you didn't so what did you do after hawaii after all the things with the parsonage with the the toxic like family reunion nonsense where'd you go what'd you do yeah um we left tropical hawaii and moved with just flip-flops and board shorts this is a true story <laughs> and one sweatshirt between my wife and myself, and moved to Idaho, way north Idaho. To be exact, for those that are curious, Bonner's Ferry, Idaho. I know where that is. Um, and we moved there because we had a unique opportunity, which was there was some property in the family, and um, it was vacant. And so we moved there for a sabbatical, essentially. Um, and the best way I can describe my experience is that um, we were, I was in Hawaii, claustrophobic. Claustrophobic to my own, um, to my own, uh, as a result of my own kind of doing, right? Like the air that I had created in my own day-to-day -day environment was unhealthy and lacked the, the proper nourishment. And I just, I couldn't breathe. Hmm. Um, I started panicking and I was depressed. And anyhow, the, the, the idea of living in rural Idaho in a cabin on a river in the woods was extremely appealing um, and maybe ended up being one of the best decisions I've made. So we moved there and the, the promise was to my family and maybe even more so to myself was that I would not work, definitely not take a ministry position, but I would not work for as long as our finances would allow. And if we, and if we lived really simply and harvested a lot of our own food, wild forested and grew some of it and had our own animals, that we could probably make it a year. And so we moved there and just pressed pause for a year. And so literally the air was really clean and I could breathe well, but <laughs> sort of emotionally and maybe maybe... Um, spiritually, I could finally take a huge inhale. I mean, it was the first time I inhaled real nourishment in four years for sure. But if you add some of the unhealth around the, you know, overworking in Nashville, it's maybe six or seven years. Well, just a recap, if, if you listened to his first episode when it first came out or you just didn't, Ryan, I started the episode out by asking, what do you do? And we laughed because it's complicated. But we kind of teased out an explanation. Third year time, you do some church planning stuff, which you really stumbled upon or found yourself doing in Nashville. But secondarily, you like to do some farming. And that was maybe part of what was going on in Nashville as well. But the third part of, of who Ryan is, is, is a writer. And so I'm not sure where the writing thing started. 
But I have the suspicion that you got really introspective in Idaho and maybe that really took off. But before we get to that, I just want to ask a very practical question because this is the thing I want to know. How many kids did you have when you uh, moved to Hawaii? We had three. My fourth was born there. Fourth kid was born in Hawaii. Yep. I think my oldest was six when I moved to Hawaii, give or take some change. And my oldest was then 10, give or take, 10 plus, maybe 10 and a half when we moved. And that would have been six months after my fourth. We moved six with a six month old to Idaho. So. So just to put things into perspective, you lived in a parsonage next to a preschool, raising your own kids, some of which were close to the age of preschool kids at the time. Is that, is that correct? That is accurate. And then with flip-flops and a, one sweatshirt and board shorts, you take your merry band of six Fasanis to Bonner's Ferry, Idaho. So in Bonner's Ferry, Idaho, because of family, land, and opportunities, you basically decide to, instead of continuing to run this crazy rat race, you do some real intentional breathing. Exactly. I did some intentional breathing, and I was confident in some skills that I had developed that, minus the cold air, the adjustment to the Flip cold air. Right? Flip-flops um, and sports shorts. And that sweatshirt, truthfully, that sweatshirt was given to me on my move from Hawaii to Idaho. It was my, I still have it to this day. My oldest brother gave it to me out of pity, right? And we got there, and the, I think three days after we moved there, it froze. So you're you're chopping I, firewood and flip flops probably. I, I mean, literally, that is not that's not an accurate you know an accurate statement. I was gathering wood for a for a, for a wood stove in flip flops in Idaho. But in a hurry, we stored away lots of wood, got the proper clothing. Obviously, I could finally breathe, so it was like the energy just rushed back. And the excitement for the, you know, the kids being in a new area, it was just like we got a second chance at life. It really was that profound. Um, and you know all the normal adjustments, to, or I should say rhythmic adjustments to a different climate and a lack of you know, you know, having to clock in or, 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 or account for my time was just incredibly enriching. And then it all came to a screeching halt because my dad was diagnosed with ALS. So here, vocationally, I pressed pause for the well-being of my own soul, but also for the health of my marriage and my family. And then we get hit, you know, head on with a terminal disease like ALS. And I don't need to belabor, you know, you know what that is or, or why that matters other than the fact that it, it, it's a, essentially a death sentence. You know, um, and it was my paternal father. So, and he had been in my life all along. And of course, that's replete with all kinds of issues. But that's sort of beside the point. It was a man that I knew my whole life as my father. And here, you know, he went from you know a viable, vibrant, sixty-eight-year-old um, to being diagnosed with ALS, and thus began this whole other journey of trying to recover from my own wounds Whoa. and now deal with the fast depletion of energy and the degradation of strength that my father was going through. Growing up, was your dad sort of the, the seed planter for why you were so interested in working ground? 
working the dirt? No, it was my mom. My mom has the green thumb. We grew up working really hard. There's two things my parents taught us. We could do anything we put our mind to, and we better be good at pulling weeds. <laughs> right? Right? Um, and, and we did a lot of that grow, growing up. And my mom just has a knack for working hard and, and, and beautifying you know, the property that we grew up in in Northern California. And of all, the, of all the sons, I have four brothers, no sisters. So we had a testosterone issue growing up. And, um, As you do. Yeah, and uh, I, it just caught with me, right? I, just, I, I really took to the enjoyment of seeing plants and plant life flourish. But anyhow, um, in Idaho, it was, a, it, was, it was a paradoxical kind of recovery, right? Because at one time I was healing and at another time someone dear to me was dying. And, and that's a death, that, of course, that I was weathering myself. Um, and, but but there's, there's a curious um, gift in all of that too, Josiah. And that was, you know, I had planned out, no one knows how long, you know, terminal disease like that is, is going to ravage the body before it finally says, okay, that's enough. So I planned a few, basically quarterly visits to visit my dad. So every three months I'd put on the calendar, I'm going to visit you, dad. These Every three months, basically like clockwork, you know, just to maximize this time together. Well, the first visit was the last visit. Oh. And, so, and it was four days. And here I'm just coming out of depression and just recovering from years of unhealthy boundaries and just sort of licking my own wounds and regaining strength as a family and re, sort of a recommitment um, to sort of marital well-being. And then just felt like the bottom was falling out in these last four days. Um, I saw my dad in real time at a pace that was measurable, like in front of me, giving way to a final rest. But... It was four days we covered more ground, to use maybe a journey metaphor, and four days we covered more ground journeying together than the previous 30-something years of my life. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, what was grueling and horrific became a gift of life in itself, um, which is not at all to gloss over, like, you know, the... The nature and and struggle of the dying process and death itself, but is to say, you know, there was a profound amount of life in those four days um, to be able to connect with my dad. But so that that's Idaho. I mean, we were, ended up being there for three years. How long? Um, how long after moving there did this happen? Uh, going to California and um, it happened. The diagnosis happened right away. I'm pretty sure that first year. Um, the, and then the passing was shortly after that. Um, and then let's see. And then I still stayed in Idaho. What was going to be a year sabbatical or a year of rest in Idaho became three years of thriving in a kind of a homesteading environment where we grew a significant amount of food and wild harvested all kinds of medicine and, and raised lots of animals and, and learn to butcher lots of animals. <laughs> um, Provided for your, your own nourishment. And yeah. that was kind of your full-time focus was just yeah. living. I, I, end, I ended up helping out. Um, ironically, the closest church was a Nazarene church. And, and so I ended up helping. After the first year, I, you know, and keeping my commitment to, to not pastoring and not working, I ended up helping, getting two jobs. One of them was helping out at a local Nazarene church. Which, just for perspective... The nearest town to our house was a town of 2,000, and it was 40 minutes from our house. 
It's not like <laughs> it's not like you rode your bike five minutes. To right. Get... No. So we were literally in the middle of nowhere, but necessarily so for my own healing. In these three years, you're kind of leaving a really troubling moment where you you have an existential crisis, perhaps, where yeah. you realize, wow. I'm unhealthy mm-hmm. and going to the spot of just complete openness to, to maybe the gift of just simply making food, right? Like mm-hmm. growing food and being a better husband, being a better father, this terrible thing, the tragic loss of your father, obviously, uh, maybe weirdly, like you said, it became kind of a, a gift. If it would have happened while you're in Hawaii, do you think that would have happened that way that you would have seen those those moments with them uh, in the same way or was that perspective shift pretty crucial and in it it was beautiful because it happened when you were the most open to, to those sorts of gifts yeah you, you touch on something that's really insightful there because for me unhealth meant disconnection right it, it meant a, a severing of a relationship with my true self um the the language i was given by a therapist while I was in Hawaii was a, a disfamiliarity with my soul, hmm. right? Like losing, like detaching this sort of like familiar intimacy with my, with my soul. Um, I, you know, and, and so experiences that are pregnant with divine meaning, um, and purpose are, are partly such not because God sort of <laughs> arbitrarily picks when to be present, but because we are present, right? And, and in my case, when I was at my least healthy um, and I was depressed and learning for the first time what an anxiety attack <laughs> looked sure. like, um, I was so disconnected from my inner self, from my true self, that I don't know if I would have even been aware enough, present enough, connected enough to see how close and tangible the divine presence was in those encounters with my dad. So I credit a large part of, you know, that gift of life that was those last few days with my dad to the hard choice a year and a half earlier to reconnect with myself, which meant disconnecting from the race, the rat race, as you put it earlier, right? So because I found health again, or maybe because health found me again, um, health found my family again, I could have those experiences with my dad. It could have been just as easy for you to jump onto, you know, the, the next back bandwagon at yeah. a church and avoid stuff and, yeah. and not, and have that disconnect right from your very being, your soul and, and miss the opportunity. Cause who knows, like it wouldn't have been convenient to fly to California if you were, well, I'm sorry, I got to preach this Sunday. Right. You know, the, there's like the pragmatics of it too. Yeah. Right. And I think you're right. Um, I'm, you know, Sometimes I feel like I have to confess that I'm an Enneagram 8. <laughs> but just for the world. You're like, a millennial, man. You just, that was your millennial yeah, cred right just there. Just for the world out there, a healthy 8 <laughs> is, is different, rather different, diametrically different than an unhealthy 8. Someone said to me once, isn't Donald Trump an 8? And I said, maybe the unhealthy version. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification there. The the healthy version absolutely loves being and practicing the gifts of a two, right? Really supportive of others. But, I mean, I'm through and through an eight. And so a new challenge is the best way 
yeah. to hide the truth Absolutely. of unhealth, right? You give me a new church or a new organization that's struggling or whatever, right? And I'm a hundred miles an hour, 4 a.m. in the morning, grinding. every morning, and I'm grinding until I go to bed, right? Until I, you know, in my unhealthy state, quote unquote, win, right? Sure. Accomplish, yeah. achieve. Until you get tired yeah. of winning, right? Yeah, exactly. Or until I literally can't go any further, yeah. right? Um, but you're right. Like, my in, in an unhealthy state where I'm disassociated, disconnected from my inner self, and my soul is famished, I probably wouldn't even have booked a flight to see my dad post-diagnosis. Hmm. Right? I would have tried to double it with a a trip that I could accomplish some like other thing with, right? <laughs> like and do like the double, the two birds or three birds with one stone kind of thing. And one of sure. them probably would have been work related. Absolutely. Oh, there's so, a convention down there. I'll stop by one night, right? Yeah. Right. So, so the gift of my unhealth, or excuse me, the curse of my unhealth became in the end the gift of life at my dad's bedside. So, so was this the same season you started to get really introspective and start writing? Or were you already writing before this point in your life? You know, I had a teacher to ask me one time who must have seen potential, I guess, in my writing. Hey, Ryan, have you considered being a writer? And I think that was his way of asking me if I wanted to go into academics, you know, like in academia, because essentially you're right for a living, research and write for a living, excuse me, publish for a living. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I just blew him off like, no way. Like, that is... Not at all what I'm interested in, you know, and, but asking that and that question's echoed all along in the last 15 years. And the answer slowly became a yes when I realized that writing doesn't have to be that which a professor will give you a good grade for. Sure. Right. When the audience became less a professor, you know, and more um, myself, essentially, or, you know, or somebody that's akin to my sensitivities and interests, the answer became a yes. And that became very clearly on the heels of my dad's diagnosis. And so, and folks, I don't, I don't, I didn't like bait that question from Josiah. (laughs) Like that, that, that question was a sincere, like, does this happen to be when you became introspective and right and wrote? And it, it actually is. And it was a coping mechanism. It's like, I'm healthy enough to be present and to hold all of this, now what do I do with it, right? And I have like chicken scratch from those four days with my dad um, because I would slip away knowing that like the container I came to this experience with was not big enough. Like I had to off put it somewhere, right? So I had this like journal. I'd slip away, tell my dad I had to go to the restroom or something and I would just vomit everything I could, just offload it so I could come back and be fresh and be present. And those journal notes, or excuse me, those that chicken scratch became a daily journal. Or if you remember back from the first episode, became meditation. Mm. And those meditations eventually were sewn together to make something like a storyline I could give back to my family as a gift. Um, which then became, at some point, just became obvious that this is a full book project. And that was the... Like that... That was the you know proverbial like snowball, right? And now like it's just building up so much momentum, and like I just now writing is a practice, a daily practice without which I'm totally less healthy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah, but it started. It did start from 
what you say with my dad. In in Idaho, I can imagine you just you just so did so much processing. You did so much introspective work. You did so much, you know. Hopefully, like refamiliarizing yourself with your wife and family, mm-hmm. right? In fresh ways. You, That's right. You probably also, and those things maybe are more important. I, I just want to say that. Mm-hmm. But it's a podcast about the church and pastors. Sure. So you probably also wrestled with some institutional issues you probably wrestled with man because uh, you you said it you went to a nazarene church and eventually did some stuff right. <laughs> like this place that has been the bane of your existence to some degree you're still very interested in in having some relationship with which some people might say hey man if i dealt with some of that stuff see you later i don't need to have anything to do with you ever again so you you held to your word with your wife there's this agreement of a year of no ministry (laughs) just being ryan the dad husband farmer you know who is chopping wood in his Mm flip-flops so what was that conversation like to to begin to say you know maybe i'll help out in some some way some facet with uh with the nazarene church like what went into i there has to have been a table talk conversation late at night where your wife's like uh, you want to run that by me again? Uh, what are you thinking of doing? Like, what did, what happened? Yeah. You know, I think for my wife, um, the, the giftings and calling are so evident um, that, that if the opportunity makes sense, like, to deny that is to deny part of who I am. Right, so that's and that's not to say that wins out because that can become this bizarre, like, abusive, even the concept of calling. Like, I don't mean that, but, but there is there is an important sense in, in knowing, you know, like what make like what gets somebody up in the morning, right? And and I hadn't like I had been profoundly hurt by the church or by churches. I mean, the church doesn't necessarily hurt anybody, but people and and ways of gathering and occurrences are hurtful, you know. And and I had this sort of laundry list of those things. And once you, I gained some critical distance and reground, regained my bearings. It was like, like part of me was hungry to to, to participate in the life of a community that called themselves followers of Jesus, right? And so when I re-entered that environment as just a parishioner, you know, with my kids, it was like immediately I, I like like a hypersensitive fully tuned in radar started finding play, ways that I could just sort of help out not on staff I mean not even vol- like not even formal volunteering stuff just plugging holes and helping out here and you know one thing led to the next and it's like you know I got asked to fill in and the pastor of course knew that I was found out you know, oh you're ordained yeah. you, you got some cred yeah and so I you know I started started Maybe started preaching there again for quickly. <laughs> In year two of Idaho Refuge time, yeah. you were already preaching at a Naz church. Yeah, but you know, but it was it was so balanced, right? Like I was on part time, and I had significant like devotion to cult, still cultivating our property, and you know, and participating in all the life giving sort of habits that we had reestablished with the family. That doing that was just like it was almost like a you know like a hand delivered you know present it was like just this like gift that i got on the doorstep you know and so she was fully supportive of me doing it at that point i have i have to assume 
I shouldn't, but I'm going to, and you can correct me. Um, some of that desire for real holistic faith community still was optimistically present in, in, Hey, maybe this, maybe some form of real life relational, uh, like maybe there's a real relational opportunity, even in the most, you know, cookie cutter traditional church, like there's still going to be meaningful relationships that we can have. And, uh, from that, from that optimistic slight sliver of hope, you know, that shift, I, every, I mean, we talked about the emotional gas tank. You ran out of gas mm-hmm. when you were the, the guy yeah. or the gal. Cause Hey, we like women pastors for the record. Um, uh, <laughs> we, we fully support that women should be pastoring. Um, sorry. I just can't help but take moments to shout that out on the podcast. Amen. Uh, you have this emotional tank that's run dry because of this, that, the other, so much of the business side, so much of the facility stuff, the custodial caretaker stuff. But when it's purely like the actual pastoral side of things mm-hmm. and it's the life giving uh, call on your life to, to participate in those moments, uh, it doesn't take as much of your life to be mm-hmm. present. And, and maybe there's suddenly more room for the, Hey, I can talk to people about my life and share some moments with them. Was that the case? Absolutely. I mean, to draw a bucket from a full well leaves no mark. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's fully replenished before the bucket even reaches the surface to try to draw from a, from a dry well. I mean, the most you get is sludge (laughs) and it's, and and no one can drink it anyways. Right? Like, so once health, returns uh, some semblance of health returned it was like there was water flowing again you know and and to draw from that was like almost no like no sweat off my back it was enjoyable and itself was life-giving it's funny how that works right sure you know um but you know you mentioned something about the you know the intentional holistic living you know as being sort of optimistically present and i remember you know as a 19 year old there i had this you know kind of epiphanous moment when I read the Sermon on the Mount and I re- and, it, and it dawned on me that this like isolated atomized journey with Jesus was incapable of resourcing me to accomplish the radical call in Matthew 5 you know or the, I mean the whole Sermon on the Mount but particularly those pungent sort of calls of Matthew 5 and I, like, I just, there's no way to do this. There's absolutely no way to do this on my own. And I remember grabbing two buddies my freshman year. I did graduate from Azusa, but I started at Point Loma. So I <laughs> grabbed two buddies in my freshman year. Um, the, the closest thing that I had known to, like, intentional, you know, friendship, Christian friendships, or intimate Christian friendships was, like, that classic college, like, concentrated experience. Um, and I grabbed two buddies, right? Um, M- Michael and Roger and we're standing there by the cafeteria and I'm like holding my Bible up you know I'm like have you guys read this like literally, literally have you read this thing and you know and I open it up and it's like do you realize there's no way to do this on my own will you do it with me like and then they're like yeah sure whatever cool that's cool let's go play ultimate frisbee or whatever right? like, <laughs> and I'm like you don't get it you don't get it anyhow in that conversation I had them promise me which I should write them and remind them of this that they, when we graduated, we'd all move in together and we'd create an intentional community that would live out the Sermon on the Mount, huh. right? I kid you not. I don't know whether it's haunted me or blessed me ever since, but it has been a consistent 
theme and, and every in context I've lived in, whether ministry context or not, you know, it has been a consistent theme. Like the question, where is the community that's willing to live out this radical call and the Sermon on the Mount? So here we are in Idaho, literally 40 minutes from a town of 2,000, and I'm still asking this question and still looking for those people and still asking people probably in some awkward, like, you know, far rural Idaho way, like, you know, if they want to start a commune, which means a totally different ah, thing oh no. in rural Idaho. Oh, no. Right? And, yeah. But, you know, it either scares people away because that's like a level of seriousness for which they would never apply, you know, to a, a, you know, a cozy life of faith or it triggers something in somebody where now they can imagine what was always sort of stirring under the surface. And we met people and made the most rich friends there in the fastest time, um, trying to live like in ways that were deeply enriched by some of the radical calls in the New Testament. Anyhow, so yes, it's a huge yes. It's always followed me, but the jury's still out on whether it haunts me or it's this blessing. <laughs> Well, it intrigues me because you're there three years, and I know mostly what happens post three years in Idaho. Like that's that's my frame of reference for for Ryan. So it's intriguing to kind of hear some of the backstory that led to this moment. You're in Idaho. You're living it up. You're being a good father, husband, person in general, right? Good steward of land. You know, really aware of hey, this feeds my soul. I can help be a blessing to other people now that I'm healthy. All these really wonderful, meaningful things, still maybe on the fringes, still connected to this institution, this traditional gathering. Maybe it's too much to say you're still working through your issues with Mm -hmm. it, um, which is why you haven't just jumped right on to, oh yeah, I will be on staff or I'll take an official position. So for those three years, you didn't have any official, like I am a pastor at a church on paper no, I did. Oh, I did. Yeah, I was um, quickly signed on as, as a pastor on the pastoral team. But my, After a year. Yeah, but my job was really flexible. Um, and, I, you know, I got to be really creative. And it was really enjoyable in, in that way. And, you know, for, it's easy to, you know, to, to pin my wounds on, you know, like the, you know, the... Kind of, you know, the 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 bearer of the weapon, or something, or something like that. Like, there's an antagonist, and it's always been the church. And the truth, I mean, the truth is, Josiah, there's been two antagonists, right? And one of them has been myself the whole time, um, and the other one hasn't even been a person. It's been microscopic, like granular moments that penetrated an unaddressed or an unhealed part of myself, right? Like it doesn't matter who it was or right? like it doesn't matter the formality of it or the environment necessarily, but it was that, you know, I had done an, enough damage to myself that this environment that wasn't never constructed for holistic health anyways could be the progenitor of a thing that stuck me deeply or wounded me deeply, right? And so in retrospect, I mean, I have all these church experiences, some on staff, most of them on staff, um, and most of them Nazarene, and they have provided me an immense amount of creative space and latitude to try new stuff. I mean, I planted a church in one of our flagship churches, somehow got the 
like the breathe like the room to plant a church with all my homeless friends and working poor single mothers in downtown Nashville and we literally had this full on five course meal every week you know 100 130 strong like in a church that otherwise would never have seen people like that cross you know the threshold and and so it's like the space to be creative and to think about how the church can take on new forms you know, to, you know, to genuinely impact a local neighborhood has always been given to me. Whether it's rural Idaho, in some ways, you know, in Hawaii. I mean, think about it. We turn the property into a permaculture farm, <laughs> right? Um, back in Nashville and, and, and sprinkled elsewhere, right? And so that, you know, the theme of craving an intentional community that would embody the radical call of Jesus and, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount and needing this sort of elbow room to think about the body as a creative kind of politic, a creative economic imagination, a creative way of you know, raising children has actually been afforded in chunks all along the way, hmm. right? It all comes together now. 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 <laughs> well, before we even get to the now, yeah. the engineering and ecumenical engine or whatever you said that one time. I have to ask a personal beef question. Do you realize how lucky you are? I do. I, you know what? A recurring prayer of gratitude is for that, um, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the fortuitous gift of that space all along the way. I, I totally am aware of that. That's not a normal storyline. It's, it's not. Well, yes. Yes. Double yes. <laughs> I, I, it is a, a prayer of thanksgiving of mine. I've also had to work for some of that too. Oh, absolutely. Right? Like, I, I, very rarely is that even a possibility, but it also takes a certain type of number eight sure. <laughs> to insist on it too, sure. right? Um, but yes, but above this, the latter, like the former is, like it's a unique um, arrangement for that to happen once, let alone several times a couple times yeah. here we are and that's the irony of the last phase of ryan's story part of part of the the reason i want you on the podcast is is the, there are some some of our listeners will reach out and say wow just hearing how people have been able to innovate or think outside the box or or do creative ministry was a breath of fresh air was life-giving was yeah. was meaningful to hear it inspired me maybe in this traditional church i can't do even half of what Ryan has done, but I can do something, and that's something that's life-giving and meaningful and purposeful, which I think is great. That's part of the thing that drives me to even try to curate the storytelling. You know, that is a podcast for a podcast about young pastors trying to figure out what it is to pastor, right? Like, right. and and along the way, we point out, hey, that didn't work well. Uh, let's not do that anymore. But then maybe along the way, we also say, hey, this is really cool, and we want to talk about it. Yeah. That sets the stage for this for this uh, current chapter of your life. Um, you talked about the three things you do. Before we talk about what your day to day ministry looks like in more detail, I'm I'm just wondering because maybe it's the cynical part of me. Our co-host is not here. He's normally the cynical one, and he he owns it. So I'll I'll add the cynical side. You got to channel his. Yeah, voice I'll there. just channel Byron's <laughs> cynical. Byron Cynicism, he's a former pastor, no longer pastor. We did talk at length on a podcast, though, about really the nuance of what even 
is ministry? What is it to be a pastor? And does it mean you have to preach on Sundays? Probably not. Spoiler alert. Um, Regardless, though, I I would speculate that there's part of you that was fine just doing the Idaho thing and just kind of on on the fringes helping in more of an unconventional way. So what happened to convince you to to actually kind of dive back into the proverbial denominational belly of the beast, sure. right? To, sure. to do what you're doing now. Yeah. I, in Idaho, I got to explore how um, the preaching, how creative, how creatively reimagined um, the preaching moment could be. Um, now, I, I mean, it was still like, held a time slot in the sort of collective liturgy of the worship service and such. But I was given free reign to play with that time and space a little bit. Um, and I've always believed that the preaching moment, the, the moment of proclamation in, in a worship service had the most per- untapped potential, right? Like, I can't remember, you know, where I heard it, but I mean, the, the preaching moment historically, is, the best I could come up with in terms of like a general statement of what it is, is not like in the classic evangelical sense, like a time for teaching, like, nor is it, um, you know, a homilaic sort of moment for one, in, you know, to, to, to share one insight. Like, I, I think the preaching moment, because of its flexible nature, has always been a type of art piece that can take on different shapes and forms it's it's like uh, it's like embodied art guerrilla art potentially subversive art that often but not always has to take on you know soliloquies and arguments and even words in the classic sense of prose you know what i mean and yeah so i got to play with a lot of that and it was a reminder week in and week out that i preached i didn't preach every week but each time i preached it was, I would take a little bit bigger risk. And these are conservative North Idaho um, Nazarenes. And they were tracking with me. And they, they, I mean, sure, I got like, like, I can't count the amount of times, like the look on, you know, Aunt Mary's face of just utter confusion. <laughs> you know, but, but you could hear a pin drop in this rural church. It's a country church. And the high schoolers were always the first ones there. Hmm. So much so that there was a couple... Um, in North Idaho, there was, there's a couple therapeutic education centers and alternative schools, um, mostly because the, the laws are pretty relaxed. And so, you know, the, you know, the hoops to jump through to create these alternative schools are pretty easy. Minimal. Anyhow, yeah, very minimal. Low bar. But... Um, and they're college young. Some of them are college and young adults, and they started coming, right? Um, because there was a type of engagement with this new art form, which was sort of part drama, part spoken word, part you know, sort of just in, in, you know, um, sermonette, right? And always like entirely engaging with the crowd, right? So I'd all constantly have people get involved with this you know, organic sort of evolving kind of extemporaneous assessment of the story, right? Anyhow, I say all that because it was a reminder to me each time I took a bigger risk that all the forms of the church, not just the worship service, all the forms that seem so concrete 
and so universal are really just contemporary iterations and the possibilities of how they can be reimagined and reshaped is infinite. And I got to test that at the, at the moment of proclamation, the preaching moment each week. And so, you know, for me, you know, I, some of it's traditional, right? Like I got a call from a district superintendent that, you know, suggested that we have a conversation that led to another conversation on and on and on and it sort of slow rolled and eventually I ended up here. But for me, it began not with the opportunity, but with the possibilities of the, the forms and how they could take on different shapes. And that's when it was rebirthed in me, a call to vocational ministry in the local church, because that local church distinct, you know, designation itself became incredibly elastic in my imagination. And I don't mean like creative as in like we can start a food pantry creative, which I have nothing against starting food. Well, I do have things against starting food pantries, but I don't want to pick any fights with listeners that have food pantries. <laughs> Contact me. We can talk about that another time. But, but I don't mean like creative, small, like extensions of the traditional sort of, you know, established church. I mean like a reimagination of all of its form. And anyhow, um, when that was rebirthed, the possibilities of it, and then I was contacted in the middle of like all this sort of imaginative energy around what could be of the local church. Mind you, the thing that, it, and the verdict is not, is not out yet, but <laughs> whether the the call to an intentional community, radical community to embody, you know, the New Testament call to peaceableness and so on and so forth, you know, in Matthew 5 through 7, and the Sermon on the Mount there has always been there, right? Haunting me or blessing or whatever, that's up to you to decide. I haven't figured it out yet. That's there still. And then marry that to a renewed health and a renewed possibility of what that local, call to the local church could become. And, he, and then the the proverbial juice, right, just started flowing, right, which complemented this daily practice of writing. And it just, and then, you know, one thing led to the next. And then when I was reached out to, right, I'm in the middle of this sort of like renewed call. And I mean, I'm look, I look back on sort of my repertoire and my, my resume and it's like, oh my gosh, like I've run a nonprofit. I've planted a church. I've preached in urban environments. I've preached in rural environments. I've preached in cross-cultural environments. I've brought back churches from financial ruin, right? Like I've done all these really create, like this really eclectic set of experiences, which really just means like I've sort of accidentally developed this eclectic set of skills. Maybe, maybe it's church planting. Maybe it's leaning even further into this elastic form and reimagining the sermon and reimagining you know spiritual development and Christian education and reimagining what youth ministry might look like you know and anyhow it was at that time that it's an opportunity to plant to be a church planter in, you know way north Bellingham Washington game. almost almost to Canada yeah. How long ago did that start? When did you when, when did you move from Idaho? Now you're in Bellingham. How long ago was that? Um, about two and a half years, um, and I mean we were. I mean, if when I say Beverly Hillbillies, if you are old enough to remember what that is, that's exactly what we looked like. If you don't know what that is, Google it. The first image is exactly what we looked like. We were moving from home setting in North Idaho. <laughs> 
And I kid you not, let me just sketch this out for a second. We had an, a 93 F-250 white beat up, you know, diesel truck with the tray. All of my, all of my goats were in the back. I built a, a wooden cage and put them all in the bed of that truck. I built a rack on top of the bed of the, or on top of the cab of the truck for suitcases and feed and stuff. A trailer came off of that, which carried another vehicle that couldn't make the trip across, right? Behind that was a U-Haul full of all our stuff. We've got kids hanging out. You know, I mean, we've yes. got animals flying out, chickens falling off the top. I mean, it was the perfect hillbilly look, right? And I, apologies, and hillbilly's probably a derogatory term that I'm not aware of, but I embodied it. So I can own it to, on some level. And here we come cruising over the Cascades, you know, to, to do church planning and ministry and land, land in Whatcom County, Washington, you know. And it's like, who on earth, you, you got to wonder, like, who on earth is this guy and what does he think he's going to do in the Pacific Northwest? Well, all of those crazy, you know, all of those crazy details in that image of, you know, of me coming across all had a plan. Right. And the, or at least all had a purpose. And that was to establish our that was to to rectify the mistakes we had made along the way, but still preserve the creative potential of the skills that we had picked up. So that meant now our farming skills were not going to be put on the back burner, but we were going to use food as a food and soil management and genuine holistic health as a means by which we developed and built community. And, and we could go all the way down the list. But like you can imagine now that the Beverly Hillbilly look coming across Cascadia, you know, had some intentionality and purpose as opposed to just some chaotic, you know, transplant or something like that. Um, and that's, you know, so that's how we got here. We got here as church planters, but with this whole, you know, slew of experiences and skills that were now going to coalesce in a semi-rural environment up in Bellingham um, as a really intentional community development kind of model for church planting. So, it, it might be important to note that this was made possible because the district decided to be creative with some assets. Uh, what, that, and that theme holds true, right? People, particularly Nazarene leadership, that's willing to take a risk on me or on possibility. And... And, and that happens, you know, it's, of course, it's my story, so it's on me, but on possibility and take real risk, right? So this, it's, again, it's a unique, um, a distinct, maybe is a better word, because it maybe happens elsewhere, but it's a very distinct, you know, thread through the whole story. Here we are again, I'm given lots of latitude, and leadership is taking a risk on, on these ideas. So I asked you at the beginning of, of the first part of this, this podcast, uh, part one of Brian Fasani's story. Who are you? What do you do? So day in and day out, I, I was tempted to, and I, I felt like there could be some lines crossed. I was tempted to try to figure out a way to like talk to your wife. Like, hey, let me ask your kids what you do, right? Like, what is it that, what? because if you ask my kids, I honestly, I mean, I do some diverse things now compared to what I once did. And they're young enough that everything's so black and white, yeah. you know? It's a, well, are you the pastor? You don't preach every week now, dad. What do you do? I'm like, hey, that's... Let's continue to talk about that, right? right? So I don't know what your kids would say, but your kids are pretty crucially at the center of what you do now, mm -hmm. right? So that's an interesting... I didn't do it, but I would have 
been intrigued to know what they would say. But day in and day out, you talked about these three-part things, the three parts of Ryan Fasani, writer, farmer, church planter, uh, and they all maybe are part of defining. So let's define that. You said it once, and maybe that's where we can start with understanding at present what you do. What is an ecumenical engine? Like, is yeah. that is it all of it at once? Is it everything? Everything plays a part in it. Is it one facet of that? I mean, talk about church planning, talk about writing, talk about farming, but all of it has some sort of place under maybe a a broader umbrella that you say is very elastic that could be what the church looks like. Sure. Yeah. You know, it it didn't take a genius, you know, to realize right away that there were no other Nazarenes in this county. Well. There's another Nazarene church, but it's a totally different town in the same county. But there were no in the in the communities that I was moving to. There were were no other Nazarenes. And now that I say that, let me qualify it. There was one Nazarene. He took me out to lunch. Shout out to Ken Borby, and then he moved <laughs> out of state. <laughs> um, um, and and then there were no others. Um, and so here, so here I was sort of beset with this sort of parachute mentality, right? Like I'm being parachute dropped in to like make miracles happen. Um, but when the formula for planting a church, you know, building a court, you know, landing, meeting your neighbors, finding people of peace, building a core team, discern, you know, discerning a strategy, having a launch day, sandwich boards, Sunday service, on and on and on and building it out that way, which is sort of classic parachute model, you know, um, then what do you, what, what is there left? Well, I mean, this is the question that, that I needed to ask for which I thought, you know, I had a decent answer for, which was all of the same first step, you know, parachute in, get to know your neighbors, build relationships. But every step after that needs to be rewritten. And I realized really quickly that one, I could work 75 hours a week and never plant a traditional Nazarene church. And not, that is no correlation to my desire to do that or not. Like, that would be an impossible goal to set and it would essentially set me up to fail immediately. And another thing I learned right away was, but there's a whole lot of people that are really interested in doing creative ministry stuff, right? Because you talk to one person over coffee and they hear a bit of your story and then, of course that it reminds them of a previous conversation of another gal or guy doing another creative thing or had that one idea at that one time or heard about you know the priest at that one church that has this is brewing up this idea you know what i mean and it's before you know it in the first year i mean i met hundreds of people interested in creative ministry opportunities right anyhow you develop in developing those relationships you know you kind of i sifted down into to about 10, 10 or less, you know, half dozen to a dozen critical potential partners in doing ministry, particularly church planting in a creative kind of organic, smaller fashion. Of those dozen that I spent time with, maybe like 12 months to 18 months in, it became evident that a half dozen of those were naturally becoming partners. At one point, in about a year and a half in, I pitched to them an idea to start an incubator, which was basically what the previous leadership had done with me, which was resource me, give me space, help me discern, and set me off to do my thing, was the very thing missing 
right? Josiah had already mentioned. That's really unique. You realize that. Well, yeah, I realize that so much that I want to replicate that for others that have innovative ministry ideas. Um, and side note, um, newsflash, maybe it's better, newsflash, the church doesn't provide the channels. Local churches don't provide the channels to usually do that. Right? Nope. So you have this abundance of people interested in doing really creative ministry um, I, you know, realizing their creative ministry idea, you might go as far as to say called to realize their ministry idea and they don't have proper channels to realize that. I was building this team that wanted to create those channels, right? I'm the only Nazarene. I'm here to plant Nazarene faith communities, gospel-centered communities, gospel-oriented, Jesus-oriented communities, whatever we want to call them. But here what I have is a team of six people that are radically invested in seeing, you know, an outburst of creative innovation um, for the kingdom in our county. I was like, say no to them and only do Nazarene stuff? Or say yes to them knowing full well that, that there will be Wesleyan participants and Wesleyan fruit from this. And, and even guaranteed there will be Nazarene bodies that come out of this. So obviously I said yes to that, you know, and lean full in. And we set out to create an ecumenical engine for innovative kingdom work, which is, just, which is kind of a, you know, a fancy way of saying a way of resourcing innovative ministry ideas. And so we started what was called, what's called the Whatcom Incubator, whatcomincubator.com. Bing! Um, the Put Whatcom, that in the description. Yeah, Whatcom Incubator, um, which does just that. It takes you know, a creative ministry ideas from idea to launch and basically affords people to, the support and the discernment process, the outlining, the resourcing, and the equipping all the way up through launch of their idea. And our first project, you know, which... And the, the, one of the sort of the beauties of this kind of work is that it's easily scalable because we're not doing the ministries, right? Like we're the agency which resources people that need the, you know, that needs the assets that are hard to come by. Um, and, and so we, you know, as long as we have, you know, the bandwidth to handle another project, it's easy once we have a template and a system to sort of help, you know, resource people to do that. But the first project is one that I'm deeply passionate about. And the beauty of it is, it's not my project, right? And it's a, um, a recovery home for ex-trafficked women. Huh. Um, and the, what makes it, you know, particularly significant is not just the, the people it's reaching um, and the need for, you know, sort of grace, an abundance of grace for for women that have come out of that life, but it's <clears throat> it's precisely that. That's the kind of ministry that would run into dead end after dead end if it emerged in the local church. Not because local churches don't want to advocate for that kind of ministry, but because that's the kind of ministry that swallows the agenda of a small community, right? It's so encompassing and it's so large, right, that... Anybody that stood next to it feels overwhelmed by the magnitude of it, right? And so, of course, I mean, what, what would a pastor of a church of 60 do if someone in their congregation asked, can you help resource me to do this? 
I want a two to five year live in program for ex traffic women. Sure, we'll get right on that. I'll put that on the budget. <laughs> no. But when you create an ecumenical engine that's drawing resources from all over, right? And is actually the jo- our job <clears throat> is less to see to it that it happens and more to resource, resource the people that are doing it and to build a team outside of us to support it, then it's altogether feasible. Anyhow, so part of my church planting work looks like this Watkin Incubator, which is just to see to it that people get the advantageous gift of resource and latitude and support and intercession and everything, all the goods, to see to it that people get all the goods that the thing they're called to is, can be realized. And valid to even pursue, right? Absolutely. Like lack of isolation. You also teach people to farm, sounds like. Yeah, so our farm is all is set up entirely like an outdoor classroom, which is a way of saying it's it's very geometric and there's lots of space for gatherings, um, and it's all intended for you know so that children can be involved, and <clears throat> and the way sort of nature works, it's all complementary, right? So from one spot in the farm, you can see how all the layers of you know of the sustainable you know the system work together. From one from several vantage points, which is a powerful kind of like, you know, living display of the possibility of you know gleaning from the land. So and you know and for us that there is no it's it is disingenuous to even make a distinction for us to talk about school education, farming, and discipleship, right? Like those are virtually synonymous to us because we believe so strongly in the holistic nature of you know of discipleship and the heart of education which is awakening the imagination of a young person and teaching them to learn and critically think all of that happens by way of our farm projects and our land so um so so we we probably have I will speculate wildly as I do on this podcast. We probably have listeners who are like, hold on, but where's the sanctuary? Um, mm-hmm. Does he preach on a Sunday every week? Uh, does he have a board? Does he have all these things? But what it sounds to me, like you're saying, is that elasticity that you discovered or, or at least stumbled upon through all the years, especially once you started contemplating what you did and what your call was and, and it, it was rejuvenated within you, you started to just run with and in all of the things like that is pastoring that is ministry that is church and so on some level that might be hard for some folks to swallow like that's a pill that's hard to swallow because like hold on church is this though yeah exactly. right like i it can't be in and not not just hard to to kind of not i guess stomach's not the best way but hard to comprehend mm-hmm. it's not just hard to comprehend it sometimes folks might say well, is it because everything we did was so terrible? Right, <laughs> right? right. Like, it's just, if you try to do something different, people people will often say that change is because you're critiquing what was before you, mm-hmm. right? So in, in this desire to share stories, right, on this, on this attempt to say, hey, church could be so much more, which is, I mean, that's part of, our convictions it sounds like this exactly mm-hmm. why you have this meaningful expression of pastoring that you have uh, well, you still have to work within these interesting 
I don't know if I'd call them confines, Mm -hmm. but you still have to have these discussions with the denomination. You're connected with, with this organization. You're, you're, you know, brushing shoulders. You're trying to push. I don't know if pushing the envelopes, right word. You're trying to be the church's research and development arm. Sure. Um, and, and maybe show a way forward, but you still are having to regularly engage with those that might listen to you talk and say, that's interesting. I would have never considered that before. Yeah. And you maybe have a both end. You might have, oh, that's cool. Or, nah, heck no. We're not yeah. going to do that. So what is it like to, to be this innovative expression of church while still having deep connections with a, congreg- or a denomination that maybe... The average traditional gathering looks nothing like what you're doing. Yeah. You know, um, there's the um, there's the misconception of focus, right? Like we're f- focusing on a particular like angle of the story, which it seems like a mis- is easily misconstrue sort of the whole story, right? Like there's very much some of what I do that sort of registers as traditional pastoring. Um, it just doesn't make it into conversations about innovation, right? Like, so we have a, you know, we have a weekly gathering that we'll participate in that would, like if you had three boxes that made up, you know, something that constitutes church worship, you know, prayer and, and scripture and fellowship. Well, like, you know, check, 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 of, of course, you know. And, but I, I, I less like to think of myself, um, you know, as someone that's pushing the envelope because that can be, you know, sort of a bit seem a bit subversive or something like that. And more as, and I'm glad you said it, more as the research and development, right? Like, so I'm very much, like I'm incredibly interested in planting Nazarene churches, right? And in my, you know, tenure here, which my family says the only way I'm moving is going south, which means like six feet underground, right? <laughs> like, like not south as in like Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I'm getting, we're, I'm getting buried here, right? Like, so this is for, so we are making the kinds of decisions early up, early on, 18 months, two years in now, because the first months was just pure transition, right? But so to say two, 18 months to two years now, making the kinds of investments that can misconstrue what I'm doing as totally off the radar, but really they're the kinds of investments that empower us in the end to ha- to maintain that elasticity in our organization, right? Because because I've been afforded the freedom to be research and development. So, you know, so out of this sort of ecumenical engine, if you will, out of the team that we've built in this Whatcom incubator and, you know, the elbow room that I've been given, um, you know, to think creatively and implement creative creatively, I'm assured, I'm attempting to make the investments that will assure that we will continue to produce Wesleyan holiness creative communities into the future right and i answer to those decisions to an overseeing body that's making sure you know that that potential is within the you know the what what we're put piecing together so so while it looks like you know on paper ryan like none of what you're doing lines up to my definition one might think (laughs) right i i can see that but on the other hand like to produce entirely new you know, strand, you know, an entirely new variety of apple, right? Like it's going to take a lot of nifty grafting work up front that doesn't register as horticulture to you. 
Sure. Right. Like to, to create, you know, a, a hybrid squash, right? Like I'm going to have to do a lot of work with pollen that under the microscope doesn't look anything like gardening to you. Sure. Right. Like, and that's what we're doing, right? That's we're doing the early work. We're doing the early work of really creating the capacity for continuing to produce a network of creative bodies up here in, in Whatcom County. And I, and I think it's proving so far to do that because here's a little secret that recovery house is a partnership with a young woman that is actually at our sister Nazarene church up North. Oh. Right. So while it's a recovery house and regardless of denomination, that is like as legitimately kingdom work as anything. Absolutely. Like its roots will have, it has these Wesleyan roots that are beautiful and are being nourished, right? Um, or excuse me, being nurtured, right? And so like I have an ear to some of that too or a sensitivity to some of that too. And, you know, <clears throat> in the end, you know, will I eventually have a church, you know, because that's a measure, you know, will I eventually preach on Sunday? And confessionally, like I love preaching. Like I absolutely, I love the process of prep, preparing. I love the delivery. Um, I love the engagement afterwards. But if the answer is no, I will still have to say yes because there's so much proclamation and creative, artistic expression of the gospel that it's undeniably present already in these early forms of farming, writing, and church planning as I'm doing it. Mm. You know, it, it's. Uh... It's not lost on me. We've we've talked before this podcast. I mean, we're friends. We hang out. We talk, especially when we're supposed to be like sitting through a seminar and we ditch and go in the back and like hang out and talk. <laughs> oh, about what are you talking about? I would never, always that engaged. never happens. Just kidding. We're always where we're supposed to be. Um, but I'm aware that that you know COVID accelerated some things in in many circles and many churches and many locations. Yeah. Interestingly enough, you guys had such this such an interesting family dynamic. Uh, you know, holistic approach to things that not a lot of your day to day might have been. Mm-hmm. All that changed. However, I'm I'm really intrigued to know your thoughts on broad strokes. Maybe just the Nazarene denomination, if we want to put some limits on it. Mm-hmm. This conversation that continues to reverberate in numerous district level conversations that you know you and I have been a part of, or just conversations I have with other pastors across the country, or just folks in the church that I now serve asking, well, what is it going to look like now? Yeah. Right? There's, there's maybe this fear and trepidation that is misguided that says, oh no, I don't understand what Ryan's doing. Don't take away what I understand here and now. Mm-hmm. Right? Like there's this fear of change. There's this uh, blinders that can be put on of this is what it looks like. And I don't see anything else being qualified as church an expression mm-hmm. of, faithful service to to kingdom worker to to being a yeah. part of a faith community so sort of this broad overarching question that that maybe we can start to wrap up our time on would simply be this um how much of this traditional church work uh, remains how much of it changes how much of it pairs with what you're doing in five ten years what do we need to be sensitive to, to to continue to just at least be faithful and not create some of those almost culture war like disagreements, arguments, fights within ourselves 
So much, so much can be misconstrued. Like you just said, it can look like I'm doing this. Yeah. I'm trying to do this as a person who's still very much in the midst of this denominational church that has a reputation, mm-hmm. a reputation for for some things that are good, some things that are bad. But you know, when you conjure up in your mind what the church looks like, it's this Sunday morning traditional small town thing. Uh, there's some big churches in our denomination. It's not all the case. This past year, there's been this fervent, like, rabid question of what's happening? Do we have to change everything? We had to wear masks. Oh, no, this, that, the other. What do we do moving forward? What, what, what's going on with the church? What do you see? Uh, do you see it being this, this amazing parachurch, you know, shelter paired alongside of traditional churches? We're going to lose some traditional churches. Like, what? Let's just ask it this way. This is way too convoluted. You, <laughs> this is too much. I'm gonna ask it succinctly and simply. Yeah. What do you hope the church looks like in the proverbial tomorrow? Yeah. Like the majority of our relationships, the church will continue to migrate online. I think we've only seen the beginning of that. If I could quantify it and say 10 years ago it was 25% online and now, especially in COVID, it's 80% online or whatever, I think we're still at the beginning. I think you know the ongoings of the church, whether that be everything from staff meeting to Bible study to worship services, will be 99% online. That being said, the church doesn't have anything left unless... It is disseminating the types of skills that change the world. And I say it intentionally that way because so long as it's disseminating ideas, that last couple percents can also just move online. Mm. We can disseminate more efficiently the idea of Jesus in a podcast, truthfully, than all the amount of people moving. (laughs) Sure. More efficiently, quicker. I mean, I mean, TED Talks was like a cultural phenomenon that happened overnight. <clears throat> but the church, but but the gospel, and I, I'm preaching to the choir here, of course. The gospel is an embodied reality. So where do our bodies go? Do they float off into fantasy football oblivion? Hmm. I hope not. Soccer, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> International football, maybe. No. <laughs> you know, What is it that we are offering the world that makes a distinct transformative difference in the lives of chronically poor single mothers? What difference are we measurably making in a world where the majority of the boomers will die of coronary heart disease or related diseases directly as an effect of what they eat? And what ways are we offering the world an alternative that are measurable and embodied that don't swamp the poor with an exorbitant amount of medical bills i'm going to ask keep i'm going to keep going just because because these are questions that torment me and what what practices is the church giving the world that makes a dent in the astronomical consumption of pornographic material. Mm. 
In what ways are we reimagining and creating alternatives and gifting to the world as ways of more holistically shepherding the hearts of our children in education and sports and the arts? These are all responsibilities of God's people. And these cannot totally move online because they require bodies. And bodies must move and tactilely practice and kinetically learn, which is just a way of saying they have to learn to do stuff in the flesh and it can't just be cognizant or pure cognition. Now, the church, I believe, is afraid it doesn't have answers to those questions. Mm. Oh, And that's not to say the church doesn't have answers to those questions. I actually think the gospel it does have answers to those questions. I think the church would rather argue about masks instead of reckoning with whether they have those skills and practices and alternatives to offer the world. Mm. Those require human beings in the flesh learning to cultivate soil, to grow food, learning to teach and learning pedagogy and learning the arts to shepherd and share and develop children with imaginations, learning to eat and or to prepare and practice different ways of cooking and dining and breaking bread together. And I mean, and on learning the holistic health arts that we might be liberated from a profit-driven medical system. I mean, on we could go on and on and on. They all require bodies and they all require alternatives to what we're currently practicing. And behind them are certain knowledge sets, certain skill sets that can only be transferred person to person. That's discipleship. That is the spirit of learning that is behind that Greek term of methades, which discipleship, right? Mm -hmm. The ongoing, never-ending, ever-increasing journey of learning and being challenged and growing as a follower of Jesus. Sometimes that really looks as simple as like the lost art of growing radishes. <laughs> I mean, as mundane and silly as that sounds, like, okay, I get it. Maybe that's sort of part tongue-in-cheek, but sort of also serious too, serious. right? But that also learns, you know, the craft you know, the craft of intergenerational music productions because that's an art in managing people and inspiring hearts and giving purpose to elderly people, right? Like, like these take bodies and take skills that are lost if it's subject to a TED Talk. The, the most meaningful intergenerational discipleship moments I've ever had were under the hood of a broken vehicle, oh, right? Like that's brilliant. It was just sitting mm -hmm. there, and and it's not stuff you can fully get off YouTube. Yeah. But this, you know, one time I was, it was a farmer, and he had his own shop and his own lifts, and he knew everything. He didn't have to go on YouTube, yeah. and he just did it. And I learned, and he taught me things, and we spent time together. And we'll have that moment forever to yeah. reflect back on. Remember when yeah. that was great. So, so there's. So as relationships migrate online, this like alternative discipleship that is embodied is comes in two forms. There's one which bo both of them that require <laughs> actual human presence. One is the is the discipleship vehicle that the church must retain and the in-person vehicle which could be under the, the hood of a car, right? Sure. Like that 
promotes natural conversation cross-generationally. Sure. And then the other is the actual skills that offer new life. Yeah. Right? And those are distinct, but not separate, right? Like, we need them both. We need the vehicle through which we engage and encounter and develop relationship and such. And then there's actually the thing that is the wisdom of wholeness. And that literally comes, like, these things that we're listing, right? You talk about single moms, man, because later on, not, not too long after, a year or two after, what I had learned under that hood with this with this old farmer, uh, you know, you would have looked at him like, oh, he's super crotchy old guy. I don't want to have anything to do with him. Then translated into literally being that saving the day moment for a young mom who would not have known that this thing was going on with her car. Like, yeah. Oh yeah, I know I did that because so-and-so spent two hours banging it into my head in this beautiful yeah. relational moment, yeah. which I think is the most perfect. I, I, if I ever preach on this again in, in the near future, the whole salt of the world, this life-giving presence that mm-hmm. that preserves, because salt was this preservative that helped meat and, and fish not run. Like, the salt of the world line that Jesus says, if we take it seriously, it could simply look like that. Yeah. Spending some time under the hood of a car with somebody yeah. else. I mean, that doesn't have to be it, obviously. Like, we're not trying to say, you can no longer meet in sanctuaries. <laughs> to meet under yeah. the hoods of cars. But Absolutely not. These yeah. moments, these opportunities. As a matter of fact... There's a big, you know, there's a big kind of like, you know, um, current of young people that are like waving the banner of, you know, selling church properties, right? Because there's, so, you know, there's so much equity and there's, oh, look at all these assets and we could redistribute that and rah, 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 right? And, and, and maybe I waved that banner at one point or not, but it's kind of beside the point. But there's a part of me that's like thrilled at the possibilities of, the real estate that we have not so much as this as an artifact obviously but also not as like the potential to recover some kind of outdated form or use of that facility but as like the real measurable possibilities of how to reuse those facilities to distribute train you know share cultivate these skills that I'm talking about right and obviously I've got this sort of you know, a knack for growing food because quite honestly, like if COVID exposed anything as it relates to food, it grows, it exposed how tenuous, you know, this global food system is. And, you know, and time and again, like I encounter it and I don't know why I've never heard a sermon on it other than maybe one that I sort of mentioned in passing or one I delivered and only mentioned it in passing. But I mean, it food literally food kills more people than any other cause like you want to talk you want to hold up coronavirus to another competitive you know adversary to human health let's talk about what we eat right like and like if the church this is just an example this i'm not even this is not prescriptive for churches this is descriptive of a conviction and it's just suggestive of the types of skills that we should you know be be sharing and disseminating with with you know in term in under the banner of discipleship if i mean if churches take seriously the frontier of ministry and they don't encounter that if they don't wage war and i hate violent metaphors but this is a time where it might be appropriate if they don't wage holy war against 
a, a, a food system that is literally leaving us inept and in pain chronically, then what are we offering the world? And there's this whole set of skills there and we have property to use it as such, right? And it would be a beautiful reimagination of the church lawn, right? And let me tell you, out of a quarter of an acre, I can grow 8,000 pounds of produce, right? Like you don't need a lot of land, but that's that's altogether different than a couple raised beds in a community garden. And that's a beautiful expression of the kingdom too, don't get me wrong, but that would fall under the vehicle by which we can engage relationally. But then what about the other half acre? Because we could have a farmer on staff Hmm. that could do that part-time and be the family development pastor and in 20 hours a week could grow 10,000 pounds of, of the best produce you could possibly sink your teeth into. And now we're talking about a different type of proclamation, mm-hmm. right? Anyhow, just one microscopic suggestion of where I think the possibilities of the church can go into the future, bearing in mind, you know, what we're already seeing culturally shifting. So I know it's hard to, to put it super succinctly. I don't think you have, you have some websites that you're connected with, I'm sure. I don't know if there's necessarily one website that totally embodies all the different things you're involved in. But I know that your, your farm, your house, your ecumenical engine is a place people can gather. Right. So I don't know if in the near future there will be opportunities for people to come and learn that you want out there and in the whole internet space or whatnot, but are there things right now that you can invite people to, to see or look at that we can even just put as another URL in the description? Sure. Um, there's a, there are a few. Uh, WatcomIncubator.com is a simple one to get a sense of how I'm partnering with some other you know creatives in my in my county. Um, ConsumingHope.com is the book website. Yeah. Which is just a real easy way to get a flavor of that poignant experience of both heal, death and life with my dad in the final days of of his life. Um, and then RyanFasani.blog ryanfasani.com is sort of like a it's where I blog every day but it also is kind of a catalog of some of the other stuff that I do like from there you can get a link to some of my places we grow our creative like farm stuff and then there's some other links there too but ryanfasani.com will get you there we'll put all the things in all, yeah. all the links in all the description I'll wrap this dude this is how we're going to wrap this up because I find it fun <laughs> um, I started by asking what in the world do you do right like what, what it, so th- this is how we're going to edit Ryan, this is Ryan's story he's a pastor of a church and that's what it looks like right how beautiful like and simple that. is that I like that Ryan's a pastor that's his church and this has been a story that I will continue to process there's so much there I wish I had more time. I mean, we had to drive hours to get here. We're borrowing time from another person. <laughs> I feel like we need to be good stewards of, of the space that we have, and, and we're going to need to buy that nice youth pastor coffee who let us yeah. you know, crash the house while whoever was gone so we could come in and crash this time. But Ryan, pastor of a church uh, that might not look like the typical church on the, on the corner, thanks so much for the time. Thanks so much for, for uh, being willing to sit in this uh, storage closet of sorts mm-hmm. and and share your life with me and, and these listeners of this podcast. Man, it's it's been such a pleasure. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I look forward to meeting people that have engaged with the podcast in the future. Absolutely. We'll, we'll create opportunities for that engagement. 
Uh, as always, please remember to subscribe, review, rate, do all those things, give us feedback. We're very excited about future podcasts. I don't exactly know when this one is going to air, but coming down the line, we might have some more nuns and duns, which will help us see another perspective on the church. We also have more young millennial pastors who are doing maybe just as unique and innovative things, sharing their stories as well about the niches they find themselves in, opportunities to make disciples. So please uh, please pay attention. Stay subscribed. Uh, check, it at, check us out on this next podcast whenever it may be published. But as always, I've, I've been your host. My name is Josiah. This is the Millennial Pastor Podcast. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.